You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. We're thankful that as we laugh, it comes out of a real reason to laugh. We're thankful that because of the gospel of Christ, our hope is secure, that no matter how dismal the circumstances or how great they might be, that the reason for joy is still the same, that we know you. Father, our desire this week is to understand more richly the cross, to understand more of what happened and what is still happening in our lives and what will happen in our lives because of what our Lord accomplished 2,000 years ago. Our desire as well is to enter into what that cross provides us with, an opportunity to find you and to know you more deeply. Lord, you know that I'm just a little bit along the way and don't have a great deal to say. But I pray that you'll take whatever you have given me and make it clear and helpful. I think of the lady that asked me the other day, are you going to get around to telling us exactly how we do it? Father, help us to accept mystery. Help us to accept confusion and to believe in the middle of that that you still speak and that you meet us even when we have no idea what we're doing. Thank you for your sovereign grace. Use this morning any way you choose. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm really pleased to be here this week for a number of reasons. One reason is that I'm here with Steve as a fellow speaker. And one of the things that I feel so good about is I think we're saying the same thing. Steve is a man who, as you obviously have discerned, you don't need to be around him long to realize he's not content with cliché. Christianity isn't real. He wants no part of it, but because it is real, he wants to experience it and understand it deeply. And I think one of his many gifts is to use the speaking talents that God has given him to bring truth that we're familiar with at a superficial level and to state it in a way that enlivens the soul. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be sharing the platform with Steve this week. Another reason why I'm glad to be here, and there are many, But let me tell you about a second special reason why I'm glad to be here. As um, I I mentioned the first night I spoke, or the first time that I spoke, my parents are here with Rachel and me this week, and we're very delighted about that for a special reason. Let me tell you about a project that we're going to be doing in the next two days, kind of behind the scenes, that we're going to invite um, those who would like to be a part of to, um, to participate with. Remember I told you that I did a seminar a while ago where I, I thought through, who do I know that is, that is uh, along in years, that knows the Lord in a way that I'd like to hear that person get up and talk about God for an hour? Remember I mentioned that to you and that I had a list of six names. I'm sure there are many more people, of course. But of the folks that I know well, six names came to mind. And my father was on that list. Well, Dad got up and spoke at a seminar that we held at Navigator headquarters in Glen Erie. And um, he was the hit of the week. And the reason he was the hit of the week was here was a a senior citizen who spoke meaningfully about his journey toward finding God. It's rather silly for me to be up here talking about finding God with men like him, men and women like him in the audience. One of the comments that he made in the course of addressing the seminar audience a few years ago, he referred to a passage in Acts just by way of introducing a thought where the passage says that the sailors could sense that land was near, and Dad made the observation that those who have been at sea for a long time can sometimes smell land before they see it. And his comment was this, when you get to be my age, 
Dad turns 80 in a few days. When you get to be my age, sometimes you catch a whiff of heaven before you see it. Sometimes you hear the music of heaven before you're there. Well, that phrase, a whiff of heaven, seemed to grab the souls and the hearts of the people in that audience, and um, my mind went to work. And Dad and I have just signed a contract to write a book together called A Whiff of Heaven, Discovering the Delightful Unpredictability of God. And we're also going to do a little video, four-part video series on discovering the delightful unpredictability of God, a whiff of heaven. And um, Dad is going to tell in this video series a number of incidents in his life, like the time when he was five years old and his father died. And he was by his father's bedside, four children. Dad was five. His mother was standing, weeping next to her ailing husband. And as he had been delirious with fever for about a week, about to die, she was sobbing. He came to his senses. He came clear in his mind. He took his wife's hand, and his dying, his last words were, Hush, God is in it. What does that mean to a five-year-old boy? What it meant to Dad was, God, let my daddy die. How do you find, do you want to find a God that lets the father of a five-year-old boy die? Well, tomorrow afternoon at four o'clock, I have a fly that's in love with me. <laughs> tomorrow afternoon at, um, at four o'clock, I'm going to be um, giving a, a talk on video, and we're going to invite those who would like to come. We'll tell you where it's going to be when we decide where it's going to be. We don't know yet. But I'm going to be giving a little talk introducing this four-part series, talking about what it means to have a mentor, talking about the meaning of fatherhood for a little bit, and sharing a little bit about the vision for this series. And then on Friday, that's Thursday at 4 o'clock, on Friday at 4 o'clock, uh, Dad is going to spend maybe about 45 or 50 minutes telling some stories from his life and sharing just how God has used those stories to bring him to a point where he understands something about the whiff of heaven in a way that I don't yet grasp. And we're inviting those of you who would like to be a part of that. If you've been a part of any professional filming before, you know that typically you get about 10 minutes worth of film and about three hours worth of time. And uh, the Zondervan crew that is here with us just came in this morning has assured me that will not be the way it is. It will take no more than an hour of your time. So those who are interested will make known where that will be in just a little bit. We invite your prayers for this. We think it could be a significant series to encourage people to tell their stories about life. Encourage older folks to realize the value that they have to the body of Christ as they share how God has worked in their hearts to bring them to a deeper knowledge of the Lord. In my comments with you this week, my topic is finding God. And I want to look this morning and spend really the next four sessions, the last four talks that I'll be giving this week, talking about how to ask the kinds of questions that lead us into the very presence of God. Our younger son got married a month ago. It was our first experience with that sort of thing. And I was with him 20 minutes before he actually said the words. We were standing together in the back room, prayed together, talked together, and his question of me was, Dad, when, when does it really hit? <laughs> and those of you who are chuckling to yourselves, it has already hit. And I smiled to myself, and I simply said, Soon, son, 
very, very soon. And there's no way to prepare for it. Premarital counseling typically is a waste of time because nobody is asking the right questions before they get married. There's no way to prepare for what the marital union really is like. I've been married 26 years. When Rachel first became pregnant with our older boy, Kep, I learned very quickly that women get weird. I don't understand it, but, boy, they change. I don't understand it, and I don't understand it today, but back then it was even more of, a, of an impactful mystery as to how women change. One night I recall when she was pregnant, we were lying in bed together, and I was right at that point where I was uh, just about asleep. You all know what it's like. It's the, it's the point at which you least want to be disturbed. You're about just to go over the edge. And she was, um, I could feel the rustle next to me as she sat up in bed, and she asked a question, very insincere question. She said, are you awake? <laughs> now, had she spoken her mind, do recall the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Had she spoken her mind, what she would have said was, I want you to be awake. And um, I didn't want to be awake. So when she said, are you awake? I responded with a little bit of uh, snoring type noise to let her know that I wasn't close to being awake and had no desire to be awake. At which she stepped up the attack and said, Larry, are you awake? And I still snored a little bit louder. She began to shake me and said, are you awake? Are you awake? At that point, of course I'm awake. And I turned to her and said, yes, what do you want? And she sat back on the headboard and said very quietly, I'm hungry. To which I replied, well, thanks for sharing. <laughs> she said, I'm hungry. I would like a piece of strawberry cheesecake from the Round Barn Restaurant, a high-class maitre d' tuck sort of a place in Champaign, Illinois. Honey, it's about a quarter to 11. doesn't close till 11.30. How about a grilled cheese? How about a green bean? How about anything? I knew I'd fit it in somehow. I wasn't sure. The challenge was great. And she just was insistent because she was pregnant. And she said, nothing will satisfy but a piece of strawberry cheesecake from the round barn. Well, being the marvelous husband that I am, I put on my bathrobe and slippers and got in the car and drove down to this elegant restaurant and uh, walked in the front door at about 11 o'clock at night and the maitre d' with his tux greeted me with a rather strange look and, uh, and I said, do you, do, you, do you have takeout service here? And uh, he said, I don't understand. And I said, well, I'd like a piece of strawberry cheesecake to go. And as he looked at me strange, I said, well, my, my wife is pregnant. Oh, I understand. No problem. And, My wife was in a condition of body where her appetite was very narrow. Nothing would satisfy her but a particular kind of food. What does it mean to get into a condition of soul where our deepest appetite is very highly selective? where nothing will do but knowing God more deeply. 
What does it mean to move along in our lives and develop a condition of soul where our appetite is such that finding God is absolute priority and will settle for nothing less? How do we get in touch with that part of who we are that can enjoy nothing less than God? You know what most of us do? Most of us, because we've been hurt in a variety of ways, and in a group this size, I don't know how many people are here, but if there were say, 300 women in the audience, that means a 100 of you have been sexually abused. That's national statistics, probably more. Out of 300 men, close to the same number, a little less. Hard to gather the data, but that's close. And what most of us have done, because of severe pain like that in our background, or minor pain that really is not worth speaking of publicly, no one would hear it as a dramatic story, but to us it was a big deal, because of the pain in our lives, what most of us have done is we have literally killed that part of our soul that feels the deepest pain. And with it, we have killed that part of our soul that can enjoy God most deeply. That's why the way to God is through pain. How do we revive that part of our souls? It's not easy. Remember, I was talking with a student a few years ago, and she was about to leave school to go home for the Christmas break, a 24-year-old single young woman, and she was going home to her parents. She had been in the mission field the previous summer, hadn't seen her folks for eight or ten months. And as we were chatting at a small group setting about her going home, I thought I discerned something about her going home that was less than pleasant. And I said, tell me how you're feeling about going home. She said, I'm excited about it. I haven't seen mom and dad for a long time. We have a great relationship. Mother and I just love to be together. We'll go cruise the malls and do all the window shopping and have a cup of coffee and just do all the chatty type mother-daughter stuff. Can't wait. And how about your dad? Oh, dad's just great. You know what he does? He's had a special habit of taking me out for a special breakfast meal every time I come home since I've, since I've been away. What'll that be like, she said. I said. And her response was, it'll be just great. And I said, well, um, tell me more. What'll happen at the breakfast meeting? And she said, dad, well, dad's had a lot of struggles. And, and dad, dad, uh, dad's out of work right now. And dad will share about some of the struggles he always does. How do you feel when dad talks about your struggles? What does a woman want from a man? strong man who knows how to deal with his struggles, who's able to still be an advocate for the other? How are you going to feel as your dad spends the breakfast meeting talking about your struggles? Well, we really want to be supportive of that. I just love him deeply. He's a wonderful man. I don't question that. I'm sure that's true. But tell me, in the course of your two hours over breakfast next week when you get home, tell me, will your dad ask you any questions? And with that, she burst into tears and said, he never does. Our family has revolved around Dad's pain ever since I've been a little girl. And I hurt over that. Folks, as you start facing the deepest desires of your soul for what is not now available, you move closer to finding God. What pain has been suppressed? How do we get in a condition of soul where our deepest parts, those parts that have been hurt so badly in life, are revived and resurrected to the point where our appetite for God becomes more passionate than our appetite for anything else? What I want to suggest might strike you as unusual as I begin, and maybe more so as I conclude, but let's see what happens. I want to suggest that perhaps the major 
one major route to developing an appetite for God, to resurrecting, to reviving that part of our soul that can most enjoy and most earnestly seeks after the reality of God, perhaps a major strategy is to learn what it means to ask the right questions as we live. If I were to entitle this talk, it would be called The Value of Hard Questions. The Lord has made it clear that if we're to find him, we must seek him with all our heart. In Jeremiah 29, he says that. You will, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. In other words, if I'm going to find God in the middle of life experiences, there's going to have to be a passionate pursuit of God. Him that cometh to me must believe that I am, to change the verse just a little bit, him that cometh to me in Hebrews 11 must believe that I am, that I do exist, and that I am the rewarder of those who earnestly. There's got to be a passion about this. How do we develop a passion, a panting after God as the deer pants after the water brooks? How do we develop a passion for God? I submit to you that the passion for God that's lacking in so many of our lives is lacking because we're not asking the right questions as we live. Now do something for me as I begin this talk. Think as you're sitting there, what are the questions that you're asking with some degree of zeal? Not the questions that you're asking with zeal as you listen to a preacher preach but the questions that you're asking with zeal as you related with your spouse this morning, as you thought about your kids as they got up, as you thought about some things back home, what are the questions that are most urgently on your mind as you live your lives? We're in the middle of a few decisions with one of our boys. And um, I think if you were to ask me that question, I would answer... Lord, I would like wisdom to know exactly what to do about this particular decision that I'm facing. Do I handle it this way or do I handle it this way? Do you all get frustrated when you ask questions of God like that? I heard a Bible teacher on radio about a month ago say that every time he has any question in his life, he goes to the Word of God, and within a short period of time, as he prays and studies, he always gets exactly the answer from God that he needs. He knows exactly what to do. I don't. And I think the reason, if that man is speaking truthfully in terms of his own awareness, is because he isn't asking very important questions. God doesn't always answer questions like that. But isn't it typical of us to ask questions of each other, of counselors, of pastors, of God, that basically have to do with, to use my language of a day or so ago, Lord, give me blueprints for building my city. I want to know what should I do with my child when she does this. I want to know how to restore closeness with my wife when this happens between us. I want to know what's supposed to happen in this job situation. Should I take this job, which is certain, or should I wait for this job, which may not be certain? God, lead me. Give me guidance. I need to know your will. God, teach me what I'm supposed to do with my life. Are those the fundamental questions we're asking? Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7. And I, want to, I want you to see a far more important question that one man, one godly man asked in the middle of life's stresses and trials. Luke chapter 7. I want you to see a question that John the Baptist asked. That's a very different order of question from the kind of questions that you and I often ask. 
The kind of questions we ask are the kind of questions that often result in frustration or, far worse, pride when we think we know exactly what to do. The kind of questions that John the Baptist asked was met with a very disappointing response. And I believe, for reasons I'll explain, it was the right question. Luke chapter 7 and verse 18. If John the Baptist is now in prison, you recall why he was there. Certainly he was suffering for righteousness' sake. There was nothing in his life that, nothing he had done that deserved the imprisonment. He was now suffering and the fate that shortly awaited him. John's disciples told John as he was in prison about all these things. What are the, these things in verse 18? They told John that Jesus, the one that you've heralded as the, as the Lamb of God who will save his people from their sins, that Jesus is out and about doing miracles. He's, he's helping the lame to walk and making the blind to see and raising the dead. He's doing wonderful miracles. And when John heard these things, it prompted him to ask a question calling two of them, calling two of his disciples, he sent them to the Lord to ask, now this is a strange question. Why, when you're aware of the Lord doing a bunch of miracles, would you ask this particular question? John said, are you the one? Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Why would the miracles of Jesus prompt John to ask that question? Are you the one, God, I'm not sure, or Jesus rather, I'm not sure if you're the one in whom I should continue to place my confidence. You've been revealed to me. I recall the baptism, the dove. I can recall that you were the one that was clearly made known to me as the one for whom I'm the forerunner, and I've declared you to be the Messiah. But now as I look at the way things are happening, I'm starting to have my doubts. Are you the one? Are you really the one? Or should we look for another? Think of what John's expectations, think of, think of what John's expectations were. What did he expect? Think about his miraculous birth. His godly parents had no doubt died at a, when he was at a young age. They were older when he was born, of course. And I wonder if John expected, as did most of the Jews in that time, certain things that the Lord would do. I wonder how many of us at the point of conversion came into the Christian experience with a certain set of expectations as to what God would do in our lives. And because he hasn't done some of them, we're wondering, are you the one? I thought by now you'd have made it clear that you're going to overcome Roman rule. You're not much of a political figure. And frankly, Lord, it seems to me that if I'm one of your chosen people, that you're treating me rather poorly. I'm here in prison, and I'm hearing about all the wonderful things that are happening out there. It's not doing me any good. You know one of the hardest commands in the Bible to obey? To rejoice with those who rejoice. When someone tells you their kid's doing great and your kid's in jail, it's pretty hard to rejoice. When someone tells you that their, their biopsy was negative, and yours was positive, you've been given six months to live, it's pretty hard to rejoice. When someone tells you they're celebrating their 25th anniversary and you just got divorced, it's pretty hard to rejoice. And it's at times like that when the question comes out of our souls, are you the one? This is not the way I expected it to be. Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Now what I want you to notice is that the context for John's question really had to do with how the Lord was handling his personal pain. A few years ago, at the church we attended, we still lived in Indiana, 
there's a family in that church that has a little girl at that time, maybe 11 or 12. I'll call her name Barbara. Barbara, a little 11-year-old girl, is mildly retarded. She's slower than her playmates. And because she's slower, her playmates don't want to play with her. She doesn't have playmates because she doesn't catch on to the jokes real well and she can't play the games like they can. And so they've um, had a real struggle with Barbara because she hasn't had many friends. It's a family that's um, socioeconomically, I suppose, would be called lower middle class. They've been living in an apartment for a number of years. But about two or three years ago, they had managed to save enough money to get a down payment for a home. And as they made a choice as to what neighborhood to move into, limited, of course, by economics, but there were a number of neighborhoods where they could afford to move, their major consideration was, Lord, will you lead us to a neighborhood where Barbara can have some friends? She's a lonely little girl. We need to be in a little family neighborhood where there's lots of little girls who want to play with Barbara. God, can you lead us in that direction? And that was their major prayer. This godly young couple who were deeply burdened for their mildly, mildly retarded daughter prayed, and they prayed incessantly for months and months and months until they believed that God had answered their prayer and made available a real cute little house that fit their needs very nicely in a wonderful family little neighborhood. And they moved and they told the story as Rachel and I had dinner with the parents about two months after they moved. During the course of that conversation, I invited the story by saying, tell me how Barbara's doing. And as I asked that question, the mother immediately teared up. Well, I'm trained to recognize those things. I picked up on it just like that. I said, things aren't so good, huh? And she started telling me the story about the move, how they moved into this home. And uh, when the moving van came into the neighborhood, the neighborhood just erupted with children. Lots of little boys for their other children, two other boys. And a number, five or six or seven little girls, all in Barbara's age range, all came to play with Barbara and said, you the new kid here? Yeah, I'm the new kid here. And Barbara ran off with these little girls and was so happy. And this was so excited, and the friendships lasted for about two days, and then the little girl did nothing to do with Barbara after that. And the mother told me that every night when Barbara comes home from school at about 3 o'clock, she goes to her room and cries until dinner. Are you the one? That night, for whatever reason, you've all heard a lot of hard stories in your lives. You all can tell a bunch. I could tell a few, and you can tell a bunch. And you all know that once in a while, a certain story just kind of gets at you. You know what I mean by that? Well, I don't know why, but that story, and I've heard far worse stories than the one I've just told you, but that particular story really got to my guts somehow. And that night, I got up, and I screamed. I wept, and I screamed, and I said, God, as I think about Barbara, you didn't even answer that simple prayer. I don't understand you. Yes, you can make the Grand Canyon. Yes, you can make the stars. Yes, you've done all these wonderful things. Why can't you just give Barbara a couple of friends? And I remember literally shouting at him, forgive me for this, he does. God, your response to pain is not adequate. And I recall my next sentence was, I don't think I can move from this spot until deep in my soul I have adequate reason to worship you, and right now I don't have it. That's my blindness. I think John was in a position something like that. 
God, you're doing lots of wonderful things. Jesus, you're raising the dead. You're giving sight to the blind. But here I am in prison, and I don't know what you're supposed to be doing in my life. I'm confused. And I'm coming to you, God. I'm coming to you, Jesus. And I'm asking a real tough question about you. I want to know what's happening with you. I want to know if you're really the one. I want to know if you're the one in whom I should be placing my complete confidence because the evidence doesn't seem to support my confidence in you. Are you the one? Now, what I want you to notice now is Jesus' response. At a natural level, it's a very, very bad response. At that very time that John was asking this question, sending his disciples to ask Jesus, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, the very data that confused you in the first place, I'm going to remind you of again. And then he adds, Blessed is the man who doesn't fall away on account of all the surprises I bring into his life. Blessed is the man who maintains confidence in me even when you move and Barbara gets no friends. Blessed is the man who maintains confidence in my goodness and is willing to trust and not negotiate no matter what I do in your life. And then to make matters worse, after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John you ever noticed in that passage that that's a real puzzling thing? Why didn't the Lord turn to John's disciples and say, go back and tell John what I think of him? He's someone really special in my economy and in my plans. A reed swayed by the wind, is that what you went out to see? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury or in palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you. He'll prepare your way before you. And I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Why didn't you tell the disciples that? So they could go back and encourage John. Why did you wait until the disciples left and were out of earshot and then you told the crowds? Jesus is so unpredictable. Yes, to you asked the right question. He didn't ask, how do I get out of here? He didn't ask, how do I improve my lot in this world? He didn't ask, how can I deal with my circumstances so things can go better for me? He didn't ask, how am I supposed to have a ministry from here? He didn't ask that. He rather asked, the real issue in my life right now is, do I have confidence that you're good? Is my confidence in you as a good God? Folks, the fundamental questions that all of us need to be asking are questions that have to do with the character of God. Just last night at the dinner table, one of the nice things about being at a week like this is you get to chat with a number of people and get in some good conversations. And last night at dinner, I was talking with a woman who was about to finish her doctorate in psychology. She's going to be a professional therapist working with adolescents. And after a good conversation, she turned to me and put me on the spot, and she said, um, tell me one thing you want to say to somebody who's about to go out and become a therapist. The first internal response was, if you can find something else to do. <laughs> we tell our students out at our university in Denver, 
any way that you can do something else, you really ought to do it because counseling is a upfront wrestling match and every day you're dealing with existential issues for which you have no clear answers, only a confidence in God that comes and goes. The suicide rate's very high among professional therapists because they deal with levels of life that are oftentimes not, um, not clear. We're not sure what to do. I didn't say that to her. I'm saying it to her now. But what I said to her last night at dinner was this. I said that as you begin working with people, keep looking for the root of the problem until you find something that only Christ can handle. Look beneath the eating disorder in that anorexic teenage girl. Look beneath the uh, anxiety in that person struggling with panic attacks, look beneath the depression and that person who simply has no energy left to live, look beneath those things and go far beneath all the events of childhood, all the abusive trauma, all the wrong ways of thinking, all the ways the self-esteem has been damaged, look beneath all of those things, all important to consider at different times, but look beneath all of those things until you find something that has to do with that person's attitude toward God. Until we get down to very deep issues where the real questions of our soul that are asked with passion is, God, are you really the one or not? This is not going the way I expected it to, and my understanding of you led me to believe that this would take place. It hasn't taken place. Is it really right for me to place my confidence in you? You don't look very good to me. Are you the one? Until those kinds of deep questions are being asked, you have not gotten down to the core, and that's why so much counseling in our generation, including Christian counseling, is superficial. That's why the indictment that Jeremiah brought against the leaders in Jeremiah chapter 6, that you have healed the wound of my people superficially, is an apt critique of much counseling today. We don't get down to the real issues. Let me illustrate what I mean. Last year we had a student in our program, a 26-year-old young woman who was causing us trouble. She was the kind of student that you just don't want to have. She was nasty. She was backbiting. She was causing all sorts of dissension on campus in the first two or three months. Well, when that kind of thing happens, I, I'm the one that has to get involved. So her immediate supervisor, somebody we call an intern, said to her, you need to go see Dr. Crabb. And she knew it wasn't going to be a reward time. She came into my office with a real chip on her shoulder. She sat down in a very jaunty, arrogant, cocksure kind of a way. And she began, she didn't wait for me to talk, she began and she said, I just want you to know something. Okay? I don't trust you. I just want you to know that. What do you say next? It beats me. Counseling is largely guesswork. But what I said to her at that point, when she said, I, don't, I want you to know I don't trust you. My response was, it would terrify you to trust anyone, wouldn't it? Ever had somebody you could trust? That led to a long story, I'll make it brief. Within an hour, that woman was weeping. Parts of her soul that had been killed began to resurrect. I had a breakfast with her about two weeks ago. She's now full-time counseling adolescents and worshiping God very deeply. Within an hour, within a few moments of that initial opening exchange in our little session, she told the story of how badly she longed for something she never had. I asked her that question. 
It would terrify you to trust anyone. You found no one trustworthy. Tell me what that's been like for you. Where's your terror most real? Where's your disappointment been most profound? Where have you longed for that which has never come about? In the course of the conversation, she said, you know, I have a fantasy that I've never told anybody. It's real simple. It's not an evil sort of a thing, but it's a daydream that I, every now and then I indulge in, not very often. It's too painful. But when I can actually almost hallucinate and visualize that the fantasy is real, then somehow there comes to my soul some level of nourishment. The fantasy is this. I pretend that my father, who had abandoned the family when I was a child, who I see maybe once or twice a year at the most, who is a big, big shot businessman who was no time for me, I fantasized that Dad would take me out to a very nice restaurant. We'd sit in a private corner, candlelight, linen napkins, nice china. And he'd reach over, and he'd put his hand on mine and look me in the eye, and he would say, I really want to know you. Tell me all about yourself, honey. I want to know what you like. What does every woman long for? By the way, the longings in the deepest part of the human soul are different for men and women to some degree. Don't let the feminists fool you. We're different. In the core of the feminine soul, I would suggest there's a deep, deep longing for an advocate. Somebody who's strong enough to not be consumed with their own problems. Somebody who's strong enough to be there on behalf of the other and to move into the other with a mood of exploring that woman and enjoying everything that's found. Do you all have that in your husbands, ladies? In your father? In any man? Answer, none of you does. Why? You're asking for what only God can provide. Are you the one? When I get in touch with what I really, really want, I want a dad that'll be there, put his hand on my hand and say, Honey, I want to know you. He's never done that. And as she told me the story, she concluded it by saying she turned from being soft and teary to being flippant angry and said, But he'll never do it. And I said, but look at your change in mood right now. Look at the anger that you feel. That's not coming out of the deepest part of your soul. Out of the deepest part of your soul is terror, a loneliness, a hurt, pain. You long for something that is not there. The Jews were so stupid back in Jeremiah chapter 2 when God said to them that everybody's thirsty, but no one's going after me. They've turned from me the rivers of living water, the springs of living water, and are digging for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. How foolish to go to a human being for satisfaction of the deepest longings of our soul when no human being can touch me the way my soul longs to be touched. But the way to become aware of how deeply you long for what only God can touch is to face how much you miss it in other people. Remember what our Lord said in John 7? He came to the Jewish people of his day. Remember Steve's sentence a day or so ago, aren't you tired of religion? That's what our Lord said. Anybody here sick and tired of playing games? Anybody here thirsty? Anybody here want something that all your ritual is not providing? Anybody here aware of a part of your soul that no father, no matter how good, no mother, no wife, no husband, no child, no pastor, no friend, are you aware of a part of your soul that no one has ever touched in full measure, maybe a taste here and there, but never in full measure, and nobody ever can? Are you aware of that level of thirst? Then the answer is you come to me, and when you're aware of the thirst, you'll come fervently. Him that cometh to me must believe he's the rewarder of those who fervently, earnestly, diligently, with great passion, pursue him. 
me close my comments by saying this. There are two kinds of questions that we can ask. One question, one kind of question, is the how-to sort of question. God, I want to study your word, go to seminars and read books so I can figure out how to get my life straightened out. It's an okay question, but it can't be primary. If it's primary, you'll never find God. God, I want to go to a counselor because I'm depressed. I want to feel better. God, I need, need to go see a psychologist because I have this weird thing happening inside of me and i got to get some psychosurgeon to kind of rewire me inside. Got to figure out how to make it all happen. That isn't the right question. It's an okay question, but it must not be primary. It's always a secondary question. That's the kind of question, by the way, the kind of question which says, how can I figure out what's true in this life so I can make it work to my advantage? That's the question that the ancients on the Tower of Babel were trying to ask. Genesis 11. I'm going to climb to the top of that tower. I'm going to see the secrets of the stars. I'm going to get into the, in touch with the heavenly realms, and I'm going to bring it down to a level that I can manage and control so my life will work the way I want it to work. And God said, no, that isn't the right question. Oswald Chambers, in a quote that I think I might have mentioned the other day, said this, Nobody makes much progress in the spiritual life until they realize that life is more tragic than orderly. There's not an order to life that you and I can figure out, manipulate, and harness to our advantage. Life is more tragic. It isn't ultimately understandable. Therefore, rather than asking questions to find a plan to follow, I must rather ask a second kind of question that moves me toward a person I can trust. Which are you after, a plan to follow or a person to trust? What kind of questions lead to figuring out the plan? What do I do here? My kid's doing this. What should I do? My wife's doing this. What should I do? I'm depressed. How should I handle it? Okay, questions, but never primary. As opposed to that, there's no way to figure it all out so I can do this and then it'll happen. Don't make the mistake of assuming that we see somebody who's raised good kids that you can go to them and say, tell me your secrets so I can do it too. It doesn't work that way. When your kids turn out well, you praise God, you don't puff out your chest. You don't get up and give testimony and say, my kids turned out well, I'll tell you what I did, so you can do it too. That's not how it works. What you do is say to God, be the glory. I talked to an older missionary who has six children, and I said, tell me the secret of child training. He just laughed. He said, well, the best I can do is just say, pray a lot. See, he knows there's no order that can be reduced to manipulable advantage. There's nothing but tragedy that only God can overcome. I must learn what it means to trust him. What kind of questions am I asking? God, teach me what to do? Or God, who are you? Do I really have confidence in you? What is my relationship with you like? Folks, understand, every psychological problem, every problem that we call a psychological problem, if it does not have roots in organic matters which belong to the realm of the physician, every psychological problem with no roots in medical issues always springs from a deficient relationship with God. There is no ultimate distinction between psychological problems and spiritual problems. Therefore, 
as we move through life dealing with all the struggles that we have and all the pains of that girl's father who never took her out, that other girl's father who never asked her questions and all the far more severe things than that, as we deal with all the struggles of life, we need to learn what it means to ask the kinds of questions and to get down to the issues that make us ask the kind of questions that will make us into earnest seekers after God. What are those questions? That's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. And I might suggest in preparation for my comments tomorrow, you might look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. And I'm going to suggest that there are four basic questions that you and I need to learn to ask. Four basic questions that if we learn how to face our lives, our hearts, our experience with honesty and integrity, we'll be led to ask four very central questions that over the course of many years might open up our souls to meet God in the kind of ways that we long to meet Him. Will you take your hymn books? We're going to close. Bill Welty, I don't think, is here. He had to step out. He asked if I'd close. And would you turn to hymn number 213? Hymn number 213, it expresses the confidence that we have as we ask the difficult questions. Because He lives... I can face tomorrow, not because he tells me everything that I'm supposed to do, but rather because he, the one in whom we have confidence, lives, I can face tomorrow. Will you stand with me? We'll sing just verse number one of 213. Here we are. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. seatings for the noon meal, which starts in just a few moments. Let me give thanks for the food as we're dismissed. Father, we're grateful for your word that gives us the example of men like John Baptist in the middle of terrible circumstances. He was asking the right question. And Father, today he's an example to us of what it means to trust you even when the results of that trust don't turn out as we expect. Father, we think of him going to his death maybe still asking the question. Maybe you gave him a wonderful blessing of supernatural confidence in yourself as he went. Father, whatever happened, we know that as soon as that axe severed his head from his body, that he was back together again in an instant and that he saw you. And his confidence has been unflagging ever since. Teach us to have a similar growing kind of confidence 
and your character and teach us the kind of questions that you want us to ask, that you delight to respond to, that you're glad when we come to you asking these difficult things. You're up to the difficulty of answering these questions. Thank you for that. Father, we're thankful for all the blessings of this week, including the food. We ask your blessing now as we go together to eat. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.